Well, if you have a Bible, please turn back to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26, we're going to be studying verses 1 to 11 this morning as we think together about God's covenant with Isaac. God's covenant with Isaac. You do know what you're missing. Has anyone ever said that to you? Maybe they've been to a restaurant that you haven't made it to yet, or they've gone to some holiday destination or bought some new piece of technology for their home, and they're just raving about it, and they're saying to you, you don't know what you're missing. You need to try this or you're missing out. And as we come to Genesis 26 this week, uh, the first big question we ask ourselves is, what exactly is this chapter doing here? Uh, I made mention of this earlier, but I wonder, did it strike you as strange that having just started the story of Jacob and Esau, we, we saw their birth, we saw last week Jacob tricking Esau into selling his birthright, we've only just started their story. So why are we going back to a story about their father, Isaac? Why do we go from reading in Genesis 25, verse 34, that Esau despised his birthright to a time in the life of his father, a story with no mention of Jacob and Esau in it, most likely because they weren't even born yet? Well, the answer is at least partly, friends, because Genesis 26 shows us what Esau was missing out on by despising his birthright. Esau's birthright wasn't just his inheritance, his, his material inheritance, though that was substantial because Isaac was a wealthy man. But it was a place, if you like, in the covenant plans and promises of God. By turning his back on his birthright, Esau was effectively turning his back on the faith and the beliefs of his family. And Genesis 26 shows us some of what Esau was missing out on by doing that. It does so by taking us back to some episodes in the life of his father Isaac, the promised son of Abraham. There's a few reasons to believe that this incident took place earlier in Isaac's life, the main one being that the boys aren't mentioned at all. And we know, of course, that Isaac was married to Rebekah for 20 years before the boys were born. Isaac also tells a lie about Rebekah in this passage, and it's very unlikely that he would have been able to get away with that lie had her children been running around. Children tend not to be very good at keeping secrets. Um, so either the boys would have spilled the beans or everybody would have soon worked out, this is a family, this isn't a brother and a sister with children that have appeared from somewhere, this is a husband and a wife. And so those are some of the reasons to believe that this incident comes chronologically before chapter 25, but it's an incident, friends, the whole chapter, chapter 26, is showing us some of the blessings that come to the one who doesn't despise their birthright, who embraces their birthright, as Isaac did. Isaac is maybe not one of the great figures of the Old Testament. We, we easily overlook him or forget about him. He's not the great pioneer pilgrim that Abraham was. He's not the cunning colorful character that Jacob will turn out to be. But friends, Isaac did embrace his birthright. He lived under the covenant promises of God. And it seems that Moses here, guided by the Holy Spirit, places this chapter where he does to show us how foolish it would be to despise the covenant promises of God. And that's what the whole of chapter 26 is about. 
I say it's quite a long passage. Uh, we're not going to deal with it all at once. We're just dealing with the first 11 verses today. So what did it mean for Isaac to be someone living in faith, in the, with the, to be living with faith in the covenant promises of God? Well, let's see, first of all today, the similar problems that believers encounter. The similar problems that believers encounter. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine in the days of Abraham. As we read through this passage earlier, I hope you were thinking to yourself, well, a lot of this sounds very familiar. Have we not seen all of this before? We have a famine. We have a patriarch moving somewhere risky to avoid the famine. We have a lie about a sister who's really a wife. Later in chapter 26, we'll see an argument about wells and water, and we'll see a treaty signed, so to speak, at a place called Beersheba. And all of that, friends, is very familiar. All of those things popped up in the life of Abraham. And some people over the years who want to pick holes in the Bible have said, well, this is obviously a case of someone who has inserted the same story twice and then made a mistake and maybe just changed some of the names around. Well, that's a ridiculous conclusion to come to. We're supposed to be thinking about Abraham and the similar course his life took as we read here about the life of Isaac. God has very intentionally led Moses to write what he's written here about Isaac. Notice verse 1. There was a famine in the land besides the former famine in the days of Abraham. So Moses is saying right at the start, just in case you're wondering, I know that Abraham faced a famine. Isaac faced a different famine. So right at the start of the passage, Moses is saying, don't be thinking that we've got our wires crossed. He wants us to be thinking about Abraham as we read about Isaac. Abraham's name appears eight times in chapter 26. His name is only going to appear another 15 times in the second half of the book of Genesis. It appears eight times here. So God wants us to be thinking here about Abraham. He wants us to be thinking about the similarities in the problems and the circumstances of Isaac's life compared to the life of Abraham. And one of the similar things that these men faced was the problem of famine, of famine. It's perhaps very difficult for us in our time and place to identify with the experience of facing a famine. We have been facing soaring food prices over the last couple of years, which have been extremely challenging for working families in our country. But the prospect of famine would be even more devastating, of course. Imagine the potential anxiety facing Isaac and Rebekah, who made their living off herding cattle and sheep. They were used to, to some degree to moving around. They, they lived a bit of a nomadic existence, but, but famine meant that Isaac has to move his household, his, his cattle, his animals, much, much further afield than usual. No social media, no GPS to find out where the best place is to go. Uh, no way of getting there quickly, just a long, slow process. Just consider how it must have brought home to Isaac and Rebecca how fragile their existence was. Assuming this did happen before their children were born, how might it add to their fears, their questions about when or how they were going to be able to have children? 
On the off chance that it did happen after Esau and Jacob were born, imagine the stress of wondering how they were going to feed their children. I wonder, did the problem of famine not prompt Isaac to ask the same question that many of us perhaps have asked at different times in our Christian lives? What's God doing here? I know God is in control. I know he's made promises. But why does it have to be this way? Why something so dangerous and close to home and life-threatening as a famine? Is there any situation in your life at the minute that's making you ask maybe similar questions to that? Again, we're not facing, I hope, a, a literal famine, but we face problems of one kind or another that spiritually perhaps do leave us feeling somewhat dry, somewhat thirsty, somewhat hungry, struggling. Maybe you're not facing anything that's physically life-threatening, but you are facing something very worrying in your life. Maybe there are things in your life today that are causing you acute anxiety. Maybe for some of you, it's as you approach old age and you wonder about how your mind or your body is, is going to slow down or feel or, or what the challenges of old age are going to be. Many Christians, their, their marriage is, is facing a time of strain. So much time is devoted to, to work, uh, the needs of the household are pressing. Uh, serving in the church is, is energy consuming. And, and in the midst of it all, the most important relationship we have after our relationship with Christ becomes strained. Christians face that just the same as others do. Maybe we're left bruised or broken spiritually, if not physically, from just a really draining situation that we're dealing with in our lives. Maybe in work or, or the church or our families. Maybe we've been trying to help someone with intense demanding needs. We love them. We, we want to help them, but, but we're, we're, we're struggling. We're, we're tiring. It's, it's draining. Maybe we are anxious about providing for our family in an economy of soaring prices and slow wage growth. Isaac faced a serious, potentially life-changing problem. We'll see in just a moment the help that God did give him to face it. But friends, I want you to consider the fact that what might have helped him to face it, at least to begin with, was knowing that his father had faced the same thing. There was a famine besides the former famine in the days of Abraham. God had protected Abraham. Even when it seemed he was staring death in the face, God had given Abraham a son, even when it seemed he would die childless. God had blessed Abraham against all the odds. And Isaac could at least take comfort knowing that God could do the same for him as he had done for his father. He was facing a serious problem, but it was a very similar problem. In fact, it was the same problem that other believers before him had faced. And likewise, friends, we're to take some comfort today from knowing that what we might be facing or, or what we might face in the future as Christians, others are facing or have faced as well, perhaps even other people in our church or in our family or in our friendship circles. And Christians are supposed to support one another and turn to one another and help one another in times of crisis or temptation or difficulty. 
we're not to simply adopt a stiff upper lip and a smiley face. We're, we're to bear one another's burdens, as Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 2. We're to pray for one another, as James says in James 5, 16. We're to share everything together, as the believers did in Acts chapter 2. Our, indi our individualistic, therapeutic culture wants us to believe that our problems are unique to us, and that it's by going inside ourselves is the only way that we're going to find any way through. That's not true. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Whether it's a problem or whether it's temptation, we're not facing anything that's entirely unique. Others have faced it as well, Paul says. Regardless of our personalities or circumstances or pay grades, and so we're to make use of the experience and the help and the sympathy of others. A friend of mine who's been supporting a family member through a cancer treatment recently, uh, he was telling me that he and his wife early on in the experience, they sought out a, a couple who had gone through the same thing several years before. They had, sadly, they had, they had lost an adult daughter to, to cancer. And essentially, my friend said to this older couple, please mentor us through this. Yes, we, we have our, our pastor, we have our family, we have our friends, but, but here's, a, here's a couple who have gone through something and they know far better what we're facing than anyone else does. Would you meet regularly to pray with us, to keep in touch with us, just to share some of your experience with us? What a wise thing to do. But it shouldn't take a cancer treatment to have us turning to one another, bearing one another's burdens, asking for help and for prayer and for uh, whatever it might be. Because the saints of Jesus Christ, friends, will face similar problems from generation to generation, from family to family. How else do we face those problems? Well, that brings us to think secondly about the special promises believers must embrace We've thought about the similar problems believers will experience. Secondly, the special promises believers must embrace. Isaac faces famine in the promised land, just as Abraham did. And he responds in the same way that Abraham did. Isaac's solution is the same as Abraham's, and that is to head south. If you look at verse 1, it says, He went to Gerar, the land of the Philistines. Now, these are different Philistines. Uh, of course, this is thousands of years before the time of David, but it's a whole different group of people uh, from the, the, the Philistines that David faced. But nonetheless, the point is, he ends up in the land of pagan foreigners. And it seems that Isaac was only planning to pass through the land of Gerar. It was on the way to Egypt. If you were going out of Canaan, you went south through Gerar. And then if you go further south, it takes you to Egypt. And that, it seems to be that Egypt was Isaac's destination or his planned destination. That's where Abraham went the first time he faced famine in Genesis chapter 12. But look, look what happens. Just look, look at uh, verse 2. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. Yahweh, the Lord, as you see it there in block capitals in your Bibles, appears to Isaac. 
The same God who appeared to Abraham now appears to Isaac. We don't know how, whether this was a dream, whether this was a, a, an appearance of, of the angel of the Lord as, as the Old Testament describes him, a, a, a figure that many Reformed theologians take to be the, the pre-incarnate Christ appearing in some way. We don't know how God appeared, but he appeared. It's the same language as he appeared to Abraham. And that in itself, friends, is so encouraging for Isaac. Isaac had undoubtedly heard uh, from his father many times of the fact that Yahweh had appeared to him and spoken to him and made promises to him. No doubt Abraham had told Isaac about that. And Isaac must have been thinking, what an amazing experience that would have been for my father. What a wonderful way for his faith to be strengthened and nurtured. But now... God appears in the same way to Isaac and personally promises him the same things that he promised his father. Can we imagine how encouraging, how reassuring, how invigorating for his faith that must have been for Isaac? We'll see this more next week as we get into the rest of chapter 26. But Isaac, he seems to have been quite a timid, quiet gentle man. He didn't like conflict. He's not what we might call today a big personality. As I said earlier, he's not the pioneer pilgrim that Abraham was. He's the, the son to whom the torch has passed. But God loves Isaac with gracious, steadfast love. And he makes that so clear to him by appearing to him here and making to him the same personal promises that he made to his father. Notice verse 3. I will bless you. How many times must Abraham have told Isaac, God is going to bless us? And now God says it personally to Isaac, I will bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. The, the, the word oath there is really just standing in for the word covenant. It means the same thing. These are the exact same promises, friends, that God made to Abraham, which he is now making to Isaac. God said to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 27, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Compare that to what God says here in verse 4 to Isaac. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. In your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, it's exactly what God promised to Abraham. Chapter 22, verse 18. This was after Abraham had offered up Isaac and then God had spared him from doing that. God said to him, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's the same wonderful covenantal promises that God graciously made to Abraham that he's now making to Isaac. But Isaac had to respond to those promises. What's the right way to respond to God's promises? Well, first of all, of course, Isaac embraced those promises by faith. He embraced the promises by faith. God tells Isaac in verse 5, the reason why these promises have come to Isaac, verse 5, is because Abraham obeyed my voice. 
So only because Abraham was faithful, only because Abraham lived with faith in God, can these promises now be passed on to his son. It was faith by which Abraham embraced the promises, and it's faith by which Isaac must embrace them as well. Faith in promises which are not yet fulfilled. Faith in future events that had not yet taken place. Genesis 15, 6 says, When God first established his covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. We read earlier in Hebrews 11, verse 8, that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to Canaan. It was faith that fueled his actions, faith that fueled his obedience. And as the writer of the Hebrews tells us, friends, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Everyone lives with faith. The only question is, what is your faith in? Or who is your faith in? Even people who say they're atheists have faith. They have faith in themselves. They have faith in their ability to live a life of meaning and purpose. They have faith to believe that they'll be healthy enough to live a, a happy life. They have faith in the airplanes that they fly in or the cars that they drive in. They have faith in all kinds of things, just not in God. A relationship with God begins, friends, when we embrace the promises he has made by faith. Have you done that? And that relationship with God continues as we find ourselves facing similar problems to what other believers faith. And faith in those times has to be exercised, like you exercise a muscle. Like you go to the gym and you work out for your, your upper body or, or your, your stomach or your, your legs, whatever part it is you want to exercise, you, you pick up the weights or you get on the machine and, and, you, and you work it out. And it's only sometimes in the problems of life that faith is exercised and the muscle of faith is strengthened. But God's promises need to be embraced by faith. And Isaac here is at a literal and spiritual crossroads in his life. Gerar, this land that he's in with Abimelech, it's the southern border of Canaan. It's the very tip of what you could realistically call the promised land as it was at that time. One more step further south as the signpost directs him, takes him to Egypt. Is he going to do that or is he going to stay where he is, where God has told him to be, a land with seemingly no food in it? God's promises are to be embraced by faith, but also then they're to be embraced with obedience. God's promises must be embraced by obedience. Again, verse 5, uh, chapter 26, verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The language there of charge, commandments, statutes, and laws, uh, those four words appear together quite a few times in the books of Leviticus, the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Uh, they summarize the whole law of God as he had given that law to Moses. And yet here, God is saying that Abraham has perfectly kept his law, even years before that law was spelled out clearly to Moses. It's emphasizing to his friends Abraham's total commitment to the commands God gave him. Was Abraham a perfect man? No but he was justified by faith. And he stayed within the confines of the covenant. 
and he lived with obedience. He did not leave the promised land again after that first time. He had faith and he obeyed. And Isaac now has to do the same. Look at verse 6. Isaac settled in Gerar. There's his faith demonstrated in his obedience. Our, po- our problems, friends, the problems that we face can never be an excuse for our persisting in unbelief. They can never be an excuse for our giving in to temptations to sin or failing to obey our God. Our problems may well have been appointed in our lives to bring us by faith into a closer walk with God. The question for you today is, are you like Isaac and Abraham, embracing God's promises by faith and obedience? You might say, what promises has God made to me? Well, he's made you even more wonderful promises than those he made to Isaac. God built on If you like, he built on the promises that he made to Abraham. He built upon them when he made fresh promises to Isaac. And he's built on those promises even more as the centuries have gone on to the point where we know how those promises have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God promised Abraham and Isaac life and land and blessing. He's promised life and land and blessing to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God promised Isaac a land an inheritance that would never fade away. Jesus says to us today, I have gone to prepare a place for you. That place is this whole earth made new and perfect. The life of resurrection that is waiting for us when Christ returns. God promised Isaac life even in a world of danger and famine and death. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever is hungry, come to me and I will feed him. Isaac had to believe to receive these promises for himself and for his offspring. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, Paul said to the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. God still likes to work through families down through the generations. He has promised to be God to us and to our children. So friends, the challenge facing us today, like Isaac, is whether we will embrace the promises of God by faith and obedience. Are we doing that? Or are we despising the birthright as Esau did? In the midst of whatever challenges, trials, pressures, problems you face today, are you exercising the muscle of faith Are you living in obedience? Are you believing that the things God has appointed for you to do, the things God has given you to believe, that they are the way through your problems, even if it doesn't feel like it's doing any good right now, to be amongst God's people, to be worshiping God, to be storing up God's word in your heart? Are you going to embrace your birthright by faith and obedience as Abraham and Isaac did? The similar problems God's people experience the, uh, the, the, the wonderful promises that God's people must embrace. And then thirdly and finally, the sovereign protection believers will experience. So we've thought about the similar problems believers encounter. We've thought about uh, the same, the, the wonderful promises that believers must embrace. 
And thirdly, the sovereign protection believers will experience. If you look back at verse 3, God said to Isaac, Sojourn in this land and I will be with you. Now, of course, God was with Abraham. But it's interesting, friends, I, I was surprised by this when I went back to really look carefully at it. God never actually made this specific promise to Abraham that he makes here to Isaac. I will be with you. Isaac is actually the, I'm not saying God wasn't with Abraham. It's just he didn't spell it out in this personal promise. Isaac is actually the first person in scripture that God says to him, I will be with you. What a wonderful reassurance. What a wonderful promise. And yet Isaac forgot this promise almost as soon as he heard it. Isaac did obey God. He does settle in Gerar instead of Egypt in verse 6. But then he does something that is painfully familiar. Look at verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, Isaac said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Again, as we considered earlier, this is most likely before Esau and Jacob were born, so that they're not there to, uh, to spill the beans. But the bigger point is, though, friends, that Isaac's fear was stronger than his faith on this particular occasion. Abraham, of course, had twice made the same mistake. Genesis 12, Genesis 20. He had gone down to Egypt and said that Sarah was his wife. He had also spent time in Gerar, with a different Abimelech and told that Abimelech that Sarah was his wife. Abimelech is a title. It's a bit like Pharaoh or Caesar. Um, so most likely Abraham was dealing with one Abimelech and Isaac now is dealing with that man's son or grandson. And Isaac is fearful of Abimelech and his people. And he forgets the promises of God. Isaac sins here, quite obviously. He feels in just as shameful a way as Abraham did. He, he's risking the integrity and honor and security of his wife to save his own skin. <coughs> All those men might really like the look of my wife and they might be willing to do whatever it takes to get me out of the way to get to her. What a shameful way to think and to act. Isaac feels as Abraham did. But, friends, God stays faithful, just as he did for Abraham. And he intervenes here in a very ordinary, what we would have almost called a coincidental way. Just look uh, at verse 8. It just so happens, verse 8, that Abimelech one day sees Isaac, we're told, laughing with Rebekah. Now, in the, Hebrew, in the original language there, the word laughter, it's a bit of a play on words, because Isaac name, Isaac's name means he laughs. So the laugher is laughing, but it's also a polite way of saying that Isaac and Rebecca are behaving in a way here that only a husband and a wife should do, certainly not the way a brother and a sister should do. And Abimelech happens to see this. And he knows as soon as he sees what's going on between them, they're not brother and sister. And so he calls him, he says, what's this? What, what, what were you doing? She's your wife. Why didn't you tell us before someone took her? and brought guilt upon us. The word guilt there is very strong. It's, it's usually used in the Old Testament to describe the guilt offering, one of the, the costliest sacrifices uh, that could be made for sin. 
So Isaac was worrying about these foreigners, all oh, these bad old pagans, you know, they might try and take my wife, and so I'll tell this lie. And actually, it's the pagans that show more concern about doing what is right than Isaac did. In fact, the passage ends in verse 11 with Abimelech warning all his people that anyone who touches not only Rebekah, verse 11, but Isaac as well, shall surely be put to death. Touch this man and you will die, Abimelech says. You may think, well, what could possibly have moved Abimelech to do that, despite Isaac having lied to him and made such a foolish mistake? It's almost as though someone is silently looking out for Isaac, isn't it? It's almost as if Isaac has someone protecting him, even when he doesn't know how to protect himself. See, when God said to Isaac, I will be with you, he meant it. When Isaac needed God's help, even because he'd made a mess of things himself, God provided it. He provided it silently. If we can use the word, he provided it naturally. Abimelech just happened to look out the window. No lightning bolts from heaven. No plagues or diseases, which happened with Abraham in Egypt. But God came through nonetheless. Ralph Davis commenting on the, the different ways in which God chose to protect Abraham and Isaac, he says, it gives us reason to praise him for the delightful variety of his ways. That's a great phrase, isn't it? The delightful variety of the ways God works to protect his people, to keep his promises despite our feelings. Again, friends, who or what fills you or is filling you with fear today? As you think about what you have to face today or tomorrow or sometime this week or this month, some of us become fearful when we think of witnessing, having to proclaim our faith. Some of us become fearful, boys and girls, when we think about standing out from others in our school because there are no other Christians and your friends aren't Christians. Your mums and dads felt like that. Maybe you feel like that as well. Some of, you, some of us become fearful when we face big decisions and we maybe rush into those decisions or we make them out of fear rather than faith and we leave God out and we make a mess. Ralph Davis says, how very fragile we are. Children and teens have fears. All sorts of adults have fears. It's not that we can never tremble, he says. In other words, it's not that we're not allowed to be afraid of something. But he says we must pray to be faithful in, our, in the midst of our fears. Let's pray, friends, even as we, as we feel and face our fears, that we might not be quite so fearful and, and not quite so forgetful of God's wonderful promise as Isaac was, I will be with you. Jesus Christ says to us, as personally today, as God said to Isaac, behold, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with you as you walk through the school gates. He's with you as you go into the kitchen to have that difficult conversation. He's with you as you go into the office full of unbelievers. He's with you even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. As the psalmist says, we need not fear. What can man do to us? Esau despised his birthright. Here's what he's missing out on. Here's what you're missing out on today if you despise the Lord Jesus Christ. God's reassurance, God's protection, 
God's promises of a better future? Are you unbelieving like Esau? Or are you full of faith like Abraham and Isaac? Faltering faith at times, yes, but faith nonetheless in God's promises, which all find their yes and amen in the one covenant son who never faltered, never failed, and who will never leave or forsake us, Jesus Christ. Amen.